Hello and welcome to Syslog, the podcast about systems topics and systems engineering. Uh, Julian and I are back in our secret recording location with the proper distancing between us. Um, I hope the tables are more than one meter wide. Um, Julian, how are you? Uh, I'm good. It's, it's really weird to be back, um, but uh, it looks far more professional. <laughs> it looks more professional and uh, we had more audio setup problems, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, today we're going to have a topic that is actually more um, less software related and slightly more hardware and uh, microprocessor related. And for that, um, we have invited a friend from uh, Belgium currently. Um, He has done uh, defensive and offensive research. So he's worked on the Suncoast Trusted Execution Processor. But uh, I think more um, recognizable is his offensive work on uh, a couple of high-profile CPU vulnerabilities that we're probably not really going to talk a lot about today. Um, what we are going to talk about today is the Intel Software Guard extensions. And uh, with that, I would say hi to uh, Jo von Burg. Hi. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think it's, it's great that, that we uh, managed to do that. So uh, we met last year. I think it's almost exactly one year ago. Yes, I think it was April oh, 2019 April. something. In, in uh, uh, Graz for the uh, Zombie Load collaboration. That was fun. Yes. yes. Um, and since you are the resident expert on Intel SGX and you have spent so much time um, uh, working with that, we thought it's a really good um, opportunity to, to invite you and uh, ask you what this Intel SGX thing actually is. Uh, because I think the, the, um, th there's not a lot of knowledge about that out there. So, yeah, that, that's definitely true, right? It's sort of an, uh, an emerging technology. I think it's now in Intel processors since uh, five years, I think. The first ones were shipped in 2015 with Skylake. And let's say there has been ups and downs along the road, I think, uh, with SGX. Uh, there were security fluctuations, is the <laughs> professional term. Yes, so I think, let's say, uh, it's a new technology and It has uh, received quite some attention from researchers and, and, and uh, I think most of what we have seen in the media is then also um, more attack-oriented research um, that abuses this technology or that, that finds holes in this technology. So maybe before we go into the technical meets, so how, did you, how did you end up in, in researching trusted execution environments? Because this is not a mainstream topic yes that's true uh, uh, good question so i think it was more or less like an organic kind of thing because i, I studied in k11 where um, people have been looking into this already for uh, i think f from before 2013 onwards so for a long time already people have been uh, working on prototypes and uh, for my master thesis i, I worked on sankus the the processor that you mentioned earlier Uh, and that's kind of how I rolled into this um, research. But actually, now, now that I think back of it, it's, it's even more interesting. I, um, as a master student, started reading about microkernels, which is a 
what, what you guys are enthusiastic about. And then I talked to uh, Frank Pieces, right, my, my current promoter, uh, professor in Leuven. And he said, oh, if you're interested in security in microkernels, we have this cool thing. It's called Sankus. And uh, it builds security directly in the processor. And we need someone to think about how to integrate operating systems on such a processor. And that's kind of how I rolled into this master thesis. And um, after the master thesis, I continued to do the research in a PhD. And then that was about the time that um, these SGX processors from Intel became publicly available. And, and then the whole thing, again, kind of rolled out naturally. We started looking into limitations, more attack-oriented research on, on these platforms. So, so that's how it all interconnects, I think. When SGX came out, I think, was it 2013 when, the, when it first publicly was announced? Um. Yes, so I think in 2013 they published these academic papers uh, where they, uh, I think they also fixed the spec by then, right? So it was um, publicly announced and then it took two more years, I think, before you could actually buy them. Hmm. But I do remember sitting in the, in the coffee kitchen Uh, at, the inst uh, at the operating system chair here in, in Dresden and someone said like, oh my God, this is going to make microkernels obsolete. And um, well, you can't really make something obsolete that is not mainstream really. Um, <laughs> but it, that hasn't happened. So it's sort of a orthogonal thing. So um, how would you describe what SJX actually is to someone who has never heard of it before? So what, what is so, the what what is the new thing about it? I would say, in a way, it does it has more or less the same obje objective as a microkernel. What what I, for instance, in in my master thesis described is that a trust execution environment and, and SGX in this case can be regarded as a zero software microkernel. You kind of build some of the security primitives that we are. Um, that you are uh, familiar with, things like isolation and authentication, you build that directly into the hardware. So, in, so what, I, what I usually say in one sentence, what Toset Execution is about, is um, to isolate a piece of software in such a way that no outside software can access it, and then also, by means typically of cryptography, um, provide a proof that this software has been properly isolated. You see? So that's are these two concepts, um, authentication, attestation, and isolation. Okay, so, but there were parts of it out there before. So Intel, it's not the first security te technology that Intel builds into their processors. Um, so it's more like a, um, it combines many things into this one Uh, infrastructure to run very isolated software programs and that was not really possible before yes so so that you, you mentioned an interesting point there right so intel has been doing and is still doing a lot of security extensions in their processors right we have seen things like uh, txt which was very connected to the tpm before sgx then they have also things like MPX these days, which is for memory protection, buffer floats, things. Uh, but I would argue that SGX, the Software Guard Extensions, is the most ambitious technology so far to date that they have built. And this was a huge effort, right? Um, you mentioned 2013, but um, it's quite, it's 
quite clear that they were working on this for many years before. So the ambition here really is to um, start from scratch, I would say, and, and to reduce this trusted computing base, all these layers of software that we have built as a community over the last decades, all these operating systems, hypervisors, firmware, to, re to, to remove all of that from the code that you need to trust. So um, they offer this notion of enclaves, which is, you can conceptually think of that as sort of a container where you execute code that accesses data. Um, and that container is directly protected by the processor using isolation and encryption technology. So the premise, the promise of that, I think, is really beautiful, right? You, you get sort of the holy grail of security executing code on a platform without having to trust any other code. So it, when I first heard about it, my first reaction was like, how would that even work? I mean, the, the operating system is in charge of everything. And now the processor sort of claims that it can create abstractions that are sort of like operating system extra, uh, abstractions just without the operating system. So it's clearly the operating system has to do something, but it cannot matter from a security perspective. So, um, so maybe to put the question around a bit, so what do I actually get as a user? So what, what is the, so as an application developer, what are the, the, the primitives that SGX gives me uh, without me having to trust the operating system? So, yeah, it, it's again, uh, I think, uh, a very interesting tension that you mentioned there, right? This, this tension of the operating system, we, we cannot live without the operating system, but we also maybe don't want to trust it. And I think the most clear way to sort of try to clarify that is to go back to fundamentals of security, right? You have this triangle, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. That's typically the CIA properties that you use to think about security. And what I think a trusted execution environment quite neatly shows is that you can um, put the operating system in charge of availability. Things like um, when a program um, gets how, how many uh, memory pages and, and, and execution time, all, all of these concerns. But the actual content of that memory, that confidentiality and integrity of the program state, is protected by the TEE, in this case the processor. So in that way, I think, to, to counter a bit your, your previous statement, that you, you cannot do that, the, op the operating system needs to, to have access to these things. I think conceptually it's very clear that we want to have the operating system in control of system resources. It needs to be able to interrupt programs um, uh, and maybe to reclaim memory from programs. But there is no obvious reason why it needs to also be able to inspect those um, those memory locations, for instance. Right? There is some corner cases and there is indeed a lot of um, intricacies that come that, that you have to sort of take into account when you build these, these enclave applications. But that's sort of the assumption that, uh, that SGX makes. Like, operating system gets no kind of interfaces to reclaim pages from enclaves um, and to interrupt enclaves, but it will not be able to inspect the content. But that alone is, is not enough. I mean, at this point, you can have a, a, an enclave and it's secure and the, the operating system cannot look inside. But the moment it communicates with the outside, 
the operating system can see all the communication and do whatever to it. So there, there has to be like a, another component so that this enclave can, can talk to the world in a secure way. Yes, and that's where encryption comes of use, right? So encryption to the rescue, it's basically like a remote server. You have to make sure that everything that leaves that enclave or that comes in, right, symmetrically, is properly um, confidentiality and integrity protected by means of encryption. So an enclave does not give you more or less than, at least in an ideal view, I think we should elaborate on that in a bit, a sort of a black box where you can keep a secret state, let's say a cryptographic key, and using that you can bootstrap more more useful things um, like input and output channels um, using encryption with that, uh, with that uh, secret key in the enclave. Okay, so... But it comes back basically to the same point you made before. So the, the operating system would still be in charge of the availability of communication. So the operating system yes. is in charge of handling uh, encrypted and authenticated data to the network card and off it goes to the internet. But uh, if you do it all right, the operating system has no um, way to, to decrypt uh, or modify that data without the other side um, being able to detect it. Yes, so so I think, uh, for, for instance, with Sankus, right, our, our research um, trust execution environment processor that, that so, sort of resembles uh, the guarantees that SGX gives, but in an embedded 16-bit processor, we have this um, case study where we where we use Sankus in automotive control networks, and you get quite beautiful guarantees there. So, what you get is. I think an end-to-end -end encrypted channel that is truly end-to-end. -end. So not the entire endpoint is true, but only those small software modules that actually manipulate the data. So uh, to say it maybe in a, in, a, in a more accessible comparison, it would be as if your, let's say, a single um, application, message application client on your smartphone um, is end-to-end -end encrypted in such a way that no other software on your smartphone can read the messages except for the intended destination um, application. That's sort of re reducing the endpoints, uh, I would say. I think at that point we are at the, uh, I think the, the last point I wanted to, to get to, and that is the whole idea of remote attestation. I, I'm, I'm failing to ask a leading question for that. Um, <laughs> What I kind of sketched in the beginning is, right, for, for every trust execution environment, you need two primitives. And, and up to now, we have talked quite a bit about isolation, right? All these things of how can you keep things secret and maybe even how can you establish input and output channels. What we did not address is um, how do you assess the initial um, trustworthiness of, of the enclave, right? And that's what attestation tries to solve. So without attestation isolation is useless because you can see that things are protected maybe or you can assume things are protected but you don't know um, whether your software is actually properly initialized and runs inside an enclave so what the processor uh, supports there is to calculate a cryptographic proof that a certain piece of software has been loaded with a certain configuration a certain initial code and data on uh, an SGX-enabled processor, and that SGX was, was was actually applied to that to that piece of code, and uh, that's a very strong kind of guarantee, right? 
if you combine that with some trust in the processor that it can also safeguard that guarantee at runtime, which is uh, uh, a bit more nuanced as we will see, right? Then, then you kind of boots up all of the security. I think at this point it makes sense to to pick a, a use case and the only to, to I think it's it's very natural to explain it in the context of, of DRM, so of digital rights management. <laughs> Unfortunately, this was always the example that at least I also remember from the university. But there it, it, it's very natural. So you are, there is like a, there's like a service provider of sorts. So like the Netflix, um, they want to give you uh, movies and they want to make sure that you don't run the software that, uh, that um, yeah, copies the movies. So what they want to know is that you run the authenticated, uh, the, the authentic um, Netflix app, the trusted Netflix app. And uh, if they are sure that you run the uh, authentic Netflix app, then, then they feel secure uh, to send you the crypto keys to decrypt the, the actual movie. Um, now, my problem with all of this is that Is there actually a better use case? Well, we just hit on one with the secure messaging app. If you have a secure messaging app and you don't trust your Android or your iOS, that would be interesting. Yeah, so I, I share your concern. I'm also, I find it unfortunate that, that at least the initial target of many of these trusted execution technology uh, technologies was an in is DRM right and I think that's not something I as a security researcher am very fond of supporting um, but I do see a big promise into execution as a paradigm that goes beyond that um, and and so there is there's quite some things you can say about SGX in that respect so on the one hand it's let's say quite clearly designed um, with this sort of use cases in mind On the other hand, what, what Intel did very well, I think, is to make the technology um, rather open. So there is there is really some concerns there as well, because you can only run um, production enclave software that, that gets all of the benefits from this technology when you have a, a key that is signed by Intel and all this kind of uh, lock-in, but that's being addressed in newer versions. But all of the the tool chains and all of the, the workings of this technology is well documented and, and that's not always the case um, for other technologies like this. Um, and this has enabled quite some, I would say, innovative use cases that were not really foreseen when SGX was being designed. So the, the model that you described, right, with, with Netflix or another DRM provider that sort of matches one-on-one -on -one with how it was designed. But now you see that people are using it, for instance, also in the cloud. And, and there, I think, you have really benign use cases because this is a, a big open problem in security, right? We want to be able to outsource competitions to the cloud. How do you do that securely? And SGX comes sort of as a, let's say, deus ex machina um, with a solution there because it matches very well with that black box model we described. You send your data encrypted, do some computation, get the result. Um, and uh, in this respect, there is also a really interesting um, line of applications that sort of brings the cloud away from the commercial um, providers to most more distributed cloud of, of people like a, like a peer-to-peer -peer cloud right where you have 
even more issues of trust and privacy but using this kind of enclaves you you might be able to get to to a manageable solution there uh, um, so what you what you mean is that uh, with the so currently people go to big cloud providers because they have a, repu a reputation to lose so they have some interest in protecting your your data but the moment you go to to smaller and smaller cloud providers you might hit the one black sheep that takes all your stuff and runs away with it and with with the sgx so with the enclave uh, in a world where you can run your workload in an enclave that would not be a concern beyond availability there is there is definitely concerns and 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 we should go into them right this enclave okay. technology so far we only said um we only talked about it as a as sort of an ideal um mm -hmm promise but we will see that current technology cannot keep that promise right but yep. to, to come to your question about cloud providers i think we should also um understand that even the big cloud providers um right uh, that that it's not just about them and their reputation it's also for instance about the government that controls the data centers where mm -hmm. um, they are located and we know that governments are sometimes quite um, um assertive in these cases so what i think we need is a technology if we want to do this right to outsource computation to the cloud we want the technology to properly protect that and not just based on trusting some 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 um, cloud provider so so it's also interesting for instance signal right that we that we mentioned before the they have a very um explicit privacy um, reputation to maintain right um, and you see that they just they don't say just uh, trust us but they say they're actually looking into using this SGX technology to also prove that you don't have to trust them so so one of the non-DRM really cool use cases I find is private contact discovery so the, the, the problem is simple you have a list of contacts on, on, on your um, phone your, your sort of address book and you want to ask Signal when you install the app who, el who else of my contacts has Signal and can I communicate with and how you do that uh, in, in current versions, it's you send over the whole textbook, the, the whole phone book, right? And then they just uh, do a grab through that and send you back the result. But there is no need for them conceptually to see all of your contacts. They only need to have the subset that have, that have signal. And, and it's quite easy to see conceptually again, if you do this whole computation in an enclave, then you can verify that the code never leaks the contacts that don't have signal. Right? And that, that's sort of a very clear privacy-preserving property you get there. I think that that's a, a nice application. I have to add this to the show note. This was a... I think that came out as a blog post first from the Open Whisper Systems. Yes. So uh, they have a technology preview and I think this whole... So they also open source all of their codes and, and, and I think they're even working on reproducible builds so that you can actually... Um, through attestation again, right, that we talked about earlier, that you can verify cryptographically that everything is running as intended. Um, so, so that's, I think, uh, a sort of a sneak preview of what SGX can do for more benign end-user um, guarantees. Um, yeah, that's actually a good example. Um, but before we maybe go into more examples and maybe also the problems, I would come back to the how does it actually work part um because i think this is uh, pretty interesting because for for all the things we talked about it if you 
can trust the operating system, you can build similar things. So uh, you can use all the older technologies to um, to do sealed memory, to do remote attestation. It's just such a hassle that people don't bother. Um, because so traditionally, if you want uh, remote attestation, if you want to make sure that a particular software stack runs on a machine, then this has to boot the right way. All the bootloaders have to measure each other and um, the moment you get a new version of your NVIDIA GPU driver, all of it is, is pointless. Or the moment someone discovers a, a vulnerability in your operating system, which people do every week, um, it's, it's all pointless. Um, and SGX frees you from, from uh, considering the operating system. But now the question is, what does the operating system actually have to do in this case? So how, how does the operating system bootstrap SGX? Um, so yeah, so, so one comment on, on your, your, your idea, right? That remote attestation is indeed nothing new, right? This is sort of this, the core ideas are established, but what makes it very different with SGX is that it's, what, what we call a dynamic root of trust. So mm -hmm. what you described is a static root of trust. While booting, yeah. you measure all the layers and you add it up into some giant yeah, mess, right? Because because you trust all, everything statically that has been booted. And we know that this doesn't work well. And the promise of, of certain trust execution environments like, like SGX is to a dynamic root of trust where you just boot the operating system, you boot the bootloader, the firmware, all of these stages without even bothering about uh, measuring them so it's completely untrustworthy hostile environment at that point um, you start building an enclave and and you build a dynamic root of trust for only that particular enclave and then you can build another enclave with its own root of trust and you do all of these things at runtime which drastically reduces the trusted computing base and to answer your, your the second part of your question right how is this actually done sounds all a bit like magic so to do that um, Intel had to extend the instruction set and to come up with new, new kind of instructions. So what this abstractly comes down to is there is interfaces that the operating system can use, new instructions, to, for instance, say I want to create a new enclave, I want to add um, this kind of memory page to the enclave, and all of these instructions will trigger some microcode in the processor that, that does all the cryptography, uh, all the magic that's needed to, to eventually come to the point where it has created this dynamic root of trust, this measurement of that piece of software. And then it enables isolation and um, to some other instructions you can enter and exit that that container, that enclave, much like, uh, for instance, a virtual machine. You have e-enter and e-exit instructions that, that kind of mimic the enter-exit instructions for uh, virtual machines. So... So yeah, from an from an operating system dude perspective, uh, I think it's really similar. So to to virtualization, you have new paging mechanisms. You have uh, you have primitives to enter, exit, interrupt, um, and also interestingly, so this is something that the virtualization doesn't have. So the enclave has defined entry points. So it's like a like it feels like system calls to the to the enclave. Can you talk a bit uh, about why why this is actually necessary? Why can't I just jump into the enclave? Yes, 
Yeah, so so it's quite interesting, right? From a design perspective, it's a bit of like a, a mix and match of different um, things that that have been developed over the last decades and that we know work well, right? So so there was this this enter, exit, interrupt, resume um, paradigm that sort of was borrowed from virtualization. There is indeed also uh, some some changes to the page table walk that that again mimic, let's say, or or, or complement what's going on for virtual machines. And then the actual interface um, to enter an enclave mimics the system call interface. And with the same kind of reason, what you do when you jump from a user to the kernel is to go from a lower privilege to a higher privilege. And and you have sort of a similar situation when you enter an enclave. You um, offer an interface to call a two-set piece of code. If you allow to call the two-set piece of code in any kind of location, then you enable uh, essentially um, this whole line of uh, attack work on on um, code reuse attacks, right? So it's not a return-oriented programming attack, but you might have heard of, of these names, right? So if you can execute code um, at a non-intended starting point, you can obviously bypass uh, many security invariants. Um, so, so that's why isolation is not enough. You need to um, actually design, properly design an interface and, and um, properly enforce that interface as well and and that often goes wrong by the way right so so we had last year this large-scale analysis of enclave software um, that that where we showed that this enclave interface is still insufficiently understood and that there is a lot of software vulnerabilities happening there as well some of them are related by the way to to not ju- allowing to jump to to arbitrary points in the enclave yeah so so for the problems so we, we talked a bit about it, uh, talking in quotes. Uh, we, we have this pad where we uh, gather notes, and you, you mentioned that the the uh, Enclave community, the trusted execution community, c- could take some, some hints from the operating system community, or I'm, I'm sure maybe it was in a paper that I read. And I think it's very true, the, because the problems are very similar to problems that people have when they program system management mode, uh, failing to validate pointers, does this pointer really point into the enclave, uh, into my memory or into enclave memory or into untrusted memory? Who knows? Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. Is, is it already time to go into the is it secure section? Or I think that maybe there's one point that, that we haven't uh, touched on yet. And that is the, the part on how does, it, how does the remote attestation actually works. So how from a logical point do I get from running a an enclave to actually proving to someone um, the, the identity of, of the code? Yes, so so let me start with a disclaimer, right? The, the entire uh, remote attestation aspect of SGX is, is very involved. So I will try to give a more accessible uh, um, intuitive version, right? But what it ultimately boils down to is that um, when Intel produces an SGX-enabled processor, it sort of bakes in there a cryptographic key, right? So every Intel SGX CPU has one one key, um, symmetric key that is shared with 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 Intel, and and um, that that key needs to be stored secretly at some Intel facility. If that key gets leaked, the whole thing falls down, right? Um, um, what Intel also does is to burn in there a hash of their own public key. 
right? and um, that allows the processor later when it's actually um, already shipped to the customer to check that it's running a piece of code that was signed by Intel and then you can see what, what is being done there the piece of code that is signed by Intel um, will, will run in, in, a, in, a, in, in an enclave sort of a bootstrapping enclave it's called provisioning enclave which has access to that um, long-term uh, super secret um, uh, master secret in the processor and uh, what happens from there is a sort of a, a series of key derivations where from that key you derive another key um, which is uh, stored on disk that's called the long-term platform attestation key um, and then um, well well your question was about remote attestation. How can a remote platform provider see that a certain piece of code is running on a platform? And to answer that question, you need another building block, simpler building block, which is called local attestation. So local attestation reduces the problem of remote attestation to how can um, an enclave A executing on a processor set up a secure channel with an enclave B executing on the same uh, processor. So uh, a lot um, simpler. This this question is, is much simpler, right? Because we know that the processor has this super secret master key, so it can basically just allow enclave A to derive a key and enclave B to derive a key um, using their own identities, and then it can sort of um, allow these both enclaves to mutually attest each other, right? And that's the building block that's used for remote attestation, because now your client enclave that you want to attest sets up such a local secure channel with um, a special enclave provided by Intel. It's called the quoting enclave. And what, what, what that enclave essentially does is to convert that uh, local proof to a remote proof by basically putting an asymmetric uh, signature on there. And that gives you what they call a quote, sort of a certificate, right? And you can give that to Intel and they will tell you whether that was uh, signed on a genuine Intel SGX platform or not. Um, that's sort of insofar possible the, the reduced version of that um, the cool thing is that also through this key derivation scheme you include a lot of metadata about the platform as well so not just which enclave is executing but also what is the processor microcode version running on there um, which which kind of allows to recover um, or to do trusted computing based recoveries and to recover trust in a platform once it has been breached, uh, which turned out to be a quite a useful feature. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought that checking the microcode version would become that important over the last years. Um, okay, so I think if, if we are already touching on that, um, I think we have a pretty good picture on, on the high level, but um, We've, touched, uh, we've been touching so much on security things. So if I would ask you point blank, is it secure? What would be your answer? Security is impossible, would be my answer. That make, that, that's what makes it fascinating, right? It's an impossible um, aim, but we still have to try. That, that's what security research, I think how it can be summarized over the last decades, right? And And... We have to try and we are making real progress. And I think trusted execution as a general concept is, is one of those elements in, in a longer chain of we are making progress. 
have to rephrase the question to not get a politician's answer i see um <laughs> wait wait how, how do we do this um how far does it succeed in in its goal is it a better question it's an even more political question <laughs> so does it actually improve things uh, in its implementation or does it only improve things on paper I don't think it doesn't improve things or that it's like only a paper technology. The, one of the cool things is that this thing is actually built, right? And that allows all the research to be done. What what maybe has to be um, clarified here is the word implementation that you used, right? Um, so there is definitely, um, to try to be more specific, a discrepancy between the design and the promises and what actual current implementations have, have uh, been able to do over the last five years, right? Um, and, and this implementation can even be sort of uh, divided over implementation of, of SGX in the processor and then implementation of the actual software enclaves. And on both ends, uh, we have seen troubles, I would argue, yes. And it's maybe a bit remains to be seen um, how far they, they, they will be eradicated out. So... For instance, in the Linux kernel, right, we have seen many software vulnerabilities and, and they kind of seem to never end. So I'm not sure if for Enclave software we will ever get it right. And I definitely also think that um, at the processor level, we will continue to see microarchitectural attack surfaces emerge. So, so that's just... You, 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 touched on, you touched on an important point. I think this is the, the, the one thing that people should really remember. So if you put insecure code into an enclave, it will still be insecure code. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. So, so what SGX does or tries to promise, right, is reducing the trusted computing base, but not eliminating it. You will always need to trust some code. So to start with, you will always need to trust your Intel processor. That, that's already the situation. But there is a bit of extra functionality now that you also have to trust. Um, and and you always have to trust the code that you put in. And, and uh, that's also interesting, right, because we see there... Uh, but people are doing different things. Some people try to really minimize the code that you put in the enclave. So, okay, but this is uh, the, the software side. Um, I mean, there's, there's many things you can do wrong in software. I think the, the one thing that I've really found interesting is um, um, there's one property of SGX which makes it hard to, to write correct software, and that is that um, software outside of the enclave can't read enclave memory, but the other way around works. So... So th th that's a very interesting kind of aspect and it comes with a number of security implications but I wouldn't say it makes it hard to write um, uh, secure enclave codes. What it does make harder potentially and this is sort of a bit of an ongoing debate um, is whether this is... So, so this was, I think, a design decision motivated for performance. Right? So this allows you to do very quick... I.O. on unprotected data. Um, what, what is a problem, of course, is that um, if you don't properly copy the, the security-sensitive parts of that data inside before doing operations, then, then you, yes, you can in, in introduce all these kind of uh, problems. And 
Uh, what people have also showed is that you can, in principle, make uh, a new kind of, let's call it, enclave malware, where an untrusted piece of code runs inside the enclave and starts tampering with the environment outside of the enclave which is still a user space environment but you could use that maybe as a building block then to uh, target the kernel or, or something like that um, so there's also yeah, a, a number of implications once you for instance exploit a buffer overflow in an enclave and you have access to the outside then you can just copy the secret from inside to outside so there's some ramifications uh, that come there yes but from a software perspective um, it, so do you think the challenges for um, secure computing inside of an enclave, uh, enclave are more on the software side, or do you think it's it's more the the microarchitectural uh, challenges that Intel had to face? So I am uh, biased by my research field, right? But I think the microarchitectural aspects are the most interesting ones, and I think also uh, the most urgent ones uh, to address. Um, there are also, I think, the ones that are most surprising and, and perhaps most unforeseen at design time of SGX. All of these software issues have been studied for decades, right? And we know quite a bit. There is some analogies, not entirely, but, but a bit of analogies, right? With user-to-kernel, virtual machines, all that, that what we talked about. So I would even like to maybe um, respond to something you said earlier about what, what would be the takeaway of today's chat, right? And I would argue that the takeaway should be that um, attackers are not restricted by abstraction levels. When SGX was designed, um, I, I can imagine the designers um, designed this for an abstract processor. And then it was implemented on top of existing x86 processors. And, and that's where I think the Achilles heel of the whole solution lies. Um, so on, on paper, SGX looks very beautiful. And it should be mentioned that the, the actual architectural design has never been broken. I'm not aware of, of any fundamental breach showing something unexpected about the design. And, and by the way, that's a bit different from, for instance, the technology that AMD has, where it was never really sold as a waterproof technology. And also researchers have shown that, for instance, they don't do integrity protection of page tables or even the memory itself. So you can do a lot of things there. Um, on SGX, you cannot do that architecturally, but the problem is that they built all of that on top of a modern, out-of-order, super-complex x86 processor. And, and that's like, uh, in the analogy, building a high-security fortress on weak foundations, I would argue. Um, so, so that's where we have seen quite some surprising and interesting stuff over the last uh, five years. So what would be a good starting point in, in uh, discussing concrete problems that SGX had? I would say we should start at the start, right? Um, so something that before we come to the really more, let's say, more surprising aspects, we should start with some things that um, the designers were already aware of, that the community was aware of, that Intel was aware of. And this is side channels, right? So. Side channels, what side channels give you in an abstract way is, I would say, a bit of a, of a first sign that is boundary between microarchitecture, the, the actual implementation of the processor, and its specification. The interface is not super rigid, that there is a bit of information going over that boundary. So uh, what you can do, for instance, to 
through timing. That's a typical uh, use case of sidechains. Right? You can use cache timing attacks um, to get to know whether a piece of data at a specific address or at least a specific range of addresses is in the cache or not. And what most, or if not all, of these microarchitectural sidechain attacks have in common is that um, you can have very rigid access control uh, going on at the architectural level. Things like processes, virtual machines, enclaves, all of these concepts. Um, but at the microarchitectural level, it's kind of all plain. They all share the same underlying um, structures like caches and branch predictors. And if you can get some insight into that, then you get to know what kind of um, code the co-located uh, protection domain is, is, is executing. So uh, that's again an instance of this uh, abstraction is only relative in the eyes of the attacker. Um, and, and, and that's something I think um, that, that started this whole um, this, this whole line of work on, on attacking enclaves. So um, the premise here is that your enclave is inaccessible um, at architectural level. You cannot just move and read the data. But for instance, when it executes a branch, it will train a branch predictor and maybe pull in some uh, data or code into the cache. And at a later point, when you already exited the enclave, you can just, um, through timing, find out in which way the branch was, uh, was taken. And that, uh, in turn, can leak, depending on the application, certain secrets. Um, so so in, in, in the start, right, we have seen um, a lot of cryptographic software being targeted in this way. Um, and, and, and perhaps the, the most interesting thing to say here is that this is already known, again, for decades, side channels. But I think in the context of SGX, they were really um, hyped up a bit because it turns out now that changing threat models comes with a cost. Right? And, and we talked a bit uh, earlier about how exactly SGX realizes that uh, the operating system is untrusted for confidentiality and integrity. Well, it turns out that uh, this untrusted operating system can use its powers to amplify all of these kind of side channels. Right? So you have to now imagine that it's completely new rule set so there is, there is a new game going on you don't have these top-down attacks anymore where higher in the system stack an application attacks a kernel or a kernel in a, in a guest vm attacks the, the hypervisor but now you have a bottom-up attack a privileged kernel attacks uh, an, an enclave and this really allows you to reduce noise in many ways so so going from simple things like um, maybe uh, pinning the the enclave to a particular CPU core, making sure no other code is executing. You don't have all of this noise from scheduling, but you can also do more advanced stuff like like what we did with this SGX Step Tool, this open source framework to prototype these attacks that we built. Um, and and there we we for instance show that you can manipulate epic timers um, to very precisely interrupt enclaves at, at every single instruction essentially. So you can sort of like a debugger, single step through your enclave, just using timer interrupts and inspecting side channel information um, after every instruction. So that basically means that all the things that um, sort of count as cheating in, uh, in normal cryptographic side channels are now fair game um, because the threat model has changed. So for, for the normal, for attacking an RSA implementation 
on your local machine with that. And you say in your paper, yeah, I did that while my operating system was single stepping through uh, through this implementation. So this would not count. <laughs> But for SJX, it does count because the attacker model explicitly says that the kernel is not to be trusted. Yes, so the, there is definitely a ramification there. And uh, so I wouldn't say that necessarily this part yet, the game completely uh, changed uh, with with respect to, well, if you compare to to, to non-SGX cryptography. So already since, since, since the early days of sidechannel attacks, when people started attacking crypto, the crypto developers have, have sort of responded to that by using what they call constant time programming and to try to never have patterns in 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 the code that depend on secrets like secret dependent code or data accesses and sort of convert your 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 black box that i was talking about earlier to a gray box you you know there is leakage and you make sure the leakage never depends on the secret and what sgx maybe have has done is to by amplifying these attacks as to increase the urge to get rid of all of these um, non-constant time coding uh, patterns and it turns out that it's really hard to make code that does not have um, uh, non-constant time patterns in there and yeah so for instance what we did with SGX step um, is quite a surprising result end result I think when, when, when SGX was first announced it was known that there would be some amplification of um, what attackers can do but at that time I think it's fair to say that we didn't know yet as a community how far you can take this. And for instance, what we do with SGX Step, um, I would argue is, is at least two kind of contributions in that area. We show that you can take this to the maximal level. You can do things like interrupting enclaves after every instruction. But we also show that you can do that very conveniently. So, so uh, how we did that is we, we have a, a loadable kernel driver. So a Linux driver that you just load at runtime and it basically does some, some messing around with devmem, um, creates memory mappings for the epic timer in user space, also creates memory mappings for the page tables in user space. And you kind of have uh, something that's quite beautiful, like you have a little mini operating system in user space and you can do all of your manipulations in your convenient uh, host application before entering the enclave. Um, so so that I think also changes the, the way we should think about these threats. It's not as it was initially kind of, uh, let's say, um, depicted by some. It's not that these are super advanced adversaries that have to compile their own kernels or write custom operating systems to get to that resolution. You can do this on a, on a stock Linux kernel without rebooting the system, just hot swap, uh, like, like you hot load uh, a driver in there and you bootstrap all of your attack environment in user space. Uh, so I think it's the, what we try to do there with that project is to show that it's really important that we understand these kind of attacks and that we defend against them because we have to assume that um, that these things are possible in the wild as well. And I think that also makes them different to the um, uh, other problems that uh, the processes had. So, for example, for uh, foreshadow, that seemed like something fixable. So Intel fixes this in the CPU, next generation will be fine. Don't need to worry about that anymore. But for, for the things you describe, you have to fix them in all applications that anyone writes for, for SGX forever. Yes, and, and 
so so that's maybe the time where we have to to make this switch explicit right so so we talked a bit first about side channels and now you brought up foreshadow which uh is is a member in this entire new family of what we call transient execution attacks and other members there are zombie load right that we worked on together and uh spectre of course and uh most recently we have lvi load value injection uh, there as well so there's a there's a number of um attacks there that that are really recent we are talking uh, from early 2018 onwards and that completely change uh, again the the uh, the, the the way we should think about um, the leakage source of the microarchitecture because what, what they show is that um, in, on certain vulnerable processes you can not just leak metadata what side channels leak like whether a branch was taken or not but you, you leak actual data uh, and that's why they have to be defended in different ways right so so with foreshadow we show that at several kilobytes per second you can just dump the enclave data so so we even show that you can do that without executing the enclave so that's horrible right so that's just a full breach of the initial promise of having this black box in i would argue that side channels is not a full breach of this promise it's just a nuance it makes that we should not think about this black box as a black box but as a gray box um what i would argue that foreshadow um uh, and, and zombie load as well in, in, in depending on the configuration show is that in certain scenarios this black box is just a white box you can just get the real raw data out and, and some of these threads um, are now being fixed in more recent microcode and uh, silicon mostly silicon um, processors so, so that's maybe let's say a medium term concern that we will get rid of um, but side channels are here to stay. Side channels, the fact that black box um, models are not possible on real processors, that, that's here to stay. And, and that will indeed require rewriting the software, every individual enclave software with that in mind. Um, do we want to, to mention Plunderworld and Rowhammer? Where would those fit into uh, the big picture of SGX security? Um, so Rowhammer um, is is a quite an interesting uh, situation because I, I would say that it um, so it does it does not affect SGX um, at least not the core confidentiality and integrity primitives because Rowhammer sort of let's say a side channel attack integrity breach attack on uh, the memory the physical memory the D, the DRAM right and uh, the cool thing about SGX that we didn't talk about yet is that it also includes uh, a, spe a special component called the memory encryption engine, which transparently encrypts and integrity and freshness protects all of the data that goes to main memory and, and, and reversely back when it goes into the processor. Um, so, so essentially what, what SGX does is it treats the whole DRAM as untrusted storage. So. Uh, Rowhammer is kind of out of scope there uh, in that respect. And for uh, Plundervolt? Breaking abstraction levels is cool and, and I think Plundervolt is, is a really uh, cool attack in that aspect. So so what's happening there indeed is, is I think it's again an instance of uh, security, perfect security is, is not possible because you have to think about everything that's going on and everything is potentially an attack factor. And what we showed there is that uh, the process certain clock speed right we, we all know this and 
abstractly speaking, an electrical uh, circuit has, has signals that travel through certain end and or gates and uh, when the processor ticks next, the result has to arrive, right? That's just like um, circuit design 101. You have a clock and every time it ticks, uh, a signal propagates, let's say, conceptually from left to right to a, a circuit. Um, the cool thing is that your, your circuit is also parameterized by a second factor and that's the voltage, right? So it's electrical, so you need to have uh, a certain amount of voltage. And it turns out that voltage and clock frequency are interconnected, right? So uh, let me think, if you want to make your processor faster with lower clock frequencies, you, you need more voltage and because of yeah, the, the signals need uh, more strength to go through in the analogy. And when you would keep the clock um, fixed, but you would lower the voltage, the signals yeah, like physically need more time to go through. And um, this is not just, so so far this is not security relevant, right? It's just uh, how circuits work. But it has really important implications for power. So power consumption really um, depends on things like voltage and, and clock frequency. And that's why all of these Intel processors have interfaces to dynamically at runtime uh, switch processors to higher frequencies and maybe also um, tweak the voltage a bit. And um, that this is really indispensable for power consumption and also for things like gaming, right? Where you really want to get all of the performance out. And it turns out you can abuse it for security, again, with um, this nice bottom-up enclave attack model where the operating system has access to these privileged processor interfaces and can slightly tamper with the voltage while the enclave is running. And that means uh, that we get into the situation where um, you reduce the voltage to the point where the signals don't arrive in time and you have errors in the computations, right? So this is really um, cool because it's a super low level attack in its explanation, but using it is just purely software. So you can mount this remotely if you hijack the operating system. You just program some MSRs and you can um, start lowering voltage, millivolt by millivolt, until you see errors coming up. So, so that's sort of... Uh, to date still the only fault injection attack that works on SGX because Rohammer is out of scope because of the memory encryption. Yeah, but um, the Plunderboard is it's beautiful in the sense that um, I think few people thought this is a thing on, on the really big CPUs because I mean, typically that's a, that's an attack that people do on the really tiny CPUs where, where execution is sort of uh, deterministic and and, and not these really ginormously complex Intel CPUs. Yes, and 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 so I think you you kind of um, coming on a, on an important point, which is that um, I think SG, SGX has been an enabler in security research for for many reasons. Um, so and and one of the things that you can see reoccurring is that some attacks that maybe were known, let's say in an academic sense, like like uh, these fault injection attacks through voltage and, and uh, frequency were already known for a long time and, and have been studied extensively on simpler embedded processors. And um, yeah, on, on, a, on a super complex x86 CPU, it was not really uh, considered super relevant yet. But what you see is when you have this game changer where you can do these attacks from bottom up, that things um, 
really become more feasible. So certain attacks, like like here, where you need to change MSRs and you need to be root already on the system, are completely out of scope for non-SGX scenarios. But by having, by sort of raising the bar, by having this ambitious enclave protection domain, I think um, SGX has also enabled um, security researchers to to come up with new and surprising threats. And and I think uh, another very beautiful example is branch prediction attacks. So these were known already, um, again, I think from early 2000 onwards, people were were looking into those. But before SGX, there were um, less explored, maybe. And um, when SGX became public in 2016, 2017, people started doing really high accurate uh, branch prediction attacks. And, and and this has led to a lot of understanding in the microarchitecture. And the next step, obviously, was Spectre. So Spectre is, um, uh, I think, partially uh, a result of this boom in microarchitectural research that sort of coincided with, with the whole SGX story as well. So, so in a way, I think raising the bar for security researchers enables creative new attacks that then often get backported to non-enclave uh, scenarios as well. So that's, a, I think, an interesting sort of um, uh, tension going on there. So this is maybe a good point to, to start looking into the future a bit. Um, so how do you see the SJX future? I think the, the one thing that has been very clear when, when I've been listening to you now is that this has been a really great learning experience for for the security community for for Intel. But what about the specific case of Intel SGX? How will it evolve? Mm. So uh, it's hard to say, right? Um, I'm mostly interested in SGX as a researcher, and and I and I think the story will continue. Um, so what we what we see there is, of course. Uh, lot of attacks but also a lot of innovative uh, use cases um, and they maybe get a bit less attention than the attacks and that's how things go right that's that's life but i think on the long term they, they might also uh, really turn out to be influential like if i think about the future of sgx i think it will fall or stand with uh, finding applications that are that, that are appealing to end users and and you mentioned before right at the start this whole drm story i i hope and i think uh, that's not going to be the future of sgx because drm is is not something that people are very happy about i think if sgx really wants to break through it will need to find applications and enable things that are uh, possible with this technology like 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 uh, the the example of the signal uh, contact discovery I gave earlier, there's also people looking into this whole inverted cloud um, idea and and this whole outsourcing to the interested cloud uh, idea. What I'm not so what I'm also not sure about is is whether SGX will be the final answer. Right? So this whole idea of trusted execution is already known to known before SGX and is also being picked up and reworked by other uh, vendors. I think almost every major processor vendor these days has something uh, that you can call enclaves or two-set execution and, and this will only continue as well, I think. I think there's one comment I would have for the DRM scenario. I mean, DRM is only as strong as the weakest part. So as long as 
there is a shitty Samsung TV out there that doesn't have DRM that I can just hack because it runs an ancient Linux. The, the person who wants to get the movies will use that Samsung TV instead of trying to hack SGX or any other complicated uh, DRM scenario. I think this is also one um, one reason why why I think you see it relatively rarely being actually used for DRM because the, the protection it gives is, is low. Um, and it, the, the signal use case is actually super nice because um, they control the systems where it runs on and they only have to do it themselves. And um, at that point, it gives value. And for DRM, it's really hard to get value out of all of SGX. Yes, yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. Also, I think one of the problems with DRM also is you can only uh, enroll it when, when it's user-friendly and when everyone has it. And at the moment, not everyone has SGX and people don't want to install all kind of special stuff and enable stuff in their BIOSes uh, in order to see some, some DRM content. Um, so I think maybe the biggest future for SGX will be in something that was sort of unexpected when it was designed. This was really designed as a client-side technology, but I think the future might lie in servers. And just to give you an idea of why I say this was designed as a client-side technology, this, this whole, I mentioned earlier, this whole memory is encrypted, right? And that also implies certain size limitations of the encrypted memory region, physical memory protected because you have to have all this integrity, Merkle trees, etc. So the first versions of SGX only had 128 megabytes of uh, secure encrypted memory, what we call EPC, Enclave uh, Page Cache. Um, and I think now that has been upgraded to 200, 256 megabytes, but it's still ridiculously low for any kind of cloud usage, right? But so that, that's where maybe the most innovative use cases will be, and maybe also some architectural innovations to make the scale to, to these kind of systems. Um, and, and you see that Intel is also adapting adapting to that. So um, they have done uh, quite some moves that, that seem to enable this kind of uses. They have this, um, what they call SGX card, which is basically a, a PCI device with a bunch of SGX CPUs in order to try and scale this uh, to, to more encrypted memory. They also have... Uh, release new attestation primitives that, that kind of uh, allow to do remote attestation without always having to go over Intel as a trusted party. And and uh, yeah, I, I'm quite curious to see what's going on there. The other thing you mentioned in the, in the preparations is that there are many uh, SDKs out there that try to abstract from the different TE... Uh, technologies so how do you see that yes so uh, that's uh, something uh, i find really interesting the whole open source ecosystem that has emerged in the last five years right and as always with with open source very chaotic and everyone knows it best and 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 and, and i think that will still continue for a while so you see now um I think I noted down some of the major players, right? You have Intel, who comes with their own SDK, which of course is SGX specific. Microsoft also has uh, an effort, which is called Open Enclave, which um, tries to do what you said. So it tries to create um, an SDK, 
that abstracts away from the underlying platform and, and allows to not only write code for SGX, but also maybe for TrustZone, and, and, and they plan to support backends to plug in there. In, in, in practice, it's still mostly SGX anyway. But you also have, for instance, more recent efforts by, by Red Hat. Uh, they have, they're having this project called NX, um, where I think it's also an ambitious project that will take a while, but um, they plan to make it very easy to migrate from from one enclave architecture to the other. And they plan to support, I think, currently AMD SEV and Intel SGX, um, but they kind of plan to support many more. And as I said earlier, uh, different vendors are each coming with their own enclave architecture, and it all has a bit of different changes. Um, so I'm, I'm personally not yet convinced that we are having the right abstractions to abstract over these um, different architectures. and. By doing so, you might be forced into poor compromises, right? Like if you have to take a technology like AMD, which completely encrypts your full virtual machine and, and offer the same abstraction to that as um, Intel SGX, which is um, intra-user space application protection, then you will have to lose some, some of the um, characteristics of, of the underlying architecture. That's true, but from an application programmer's perspective, I want um, I, I want one framework I program against and get the most benefit out of it. I mean, the one downside of SGX is that it is an Intel-only technology. So and yes. um, now that uh, business doesn't look as uh, bright anymore for for Intel. Um, I don't know. So this this might take down SGX as well. So if, if AMD has this big resurgence, uh, resurgence and uh, in two years, 80% of the systems in the server space are going to be AMD, then it's going to be tough luck for SGX. Yeah, it's it's hard to predict, but but on, on in that line, I, I would rather, like if I can hope for anything, Right. I'm, I'm really hoping that Risk Five will gain traction um, because I think we should uh, hopefully get rid of x86 at some point. And, and I mean, it's fun to hack at, but but it's it, it comes it's, with real security it's, it's applications. The, it's the wrong kind of fun. It's yes, this, <laughs> it's the thing where you are so um, amazed that it actually works. So this was one point um, we were on this on this really positive note here on on the on the ecosystem growing. But but the one thing I still have in my notes is that SGX on x86 really suffers the the complexity problem because um, as beautiful as you want SGX to be, it still has to interact with a lot of really really scary legacy things on uh, the x86 processor and this is something where, where i'm totally with you this is something where if someone would take these ideas and implement them on risk 5 uh, it would be a, a far simpler uh, technology yes so so uh, also a lot of the issues we have seen stem from this interaction with x86. Like if you think about it, essentially foreshadow, for instance, is um, a result of paging. The, the fact that you have pages and that you can mark them as not present. And that, that, that's an architectural um, aspect that then interacts with a microarchitectural uh, 
design flaw, I would say, in, 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 in Intel uh, vulnerable processors. But if you think, like, and I think we have to do that as researchers, you have to think um, more, more um, how do you say, think different. And then, you, like, if you think boldly, we should make just execution enclaves on top of a plain address space, no virtual memory, no legacy, no nothing. And just, I think th this, this technology has the, has the potential to maybe replace all of the, the legacy that we are dealing with. Virtual machines and processes and kernels and user space, all of that in, in, in principle could be replaced, I think, with something like enclaves. Um, and, and that's sort of the, I think the design space that we try to explore with this Sankus project that I mentioned earlier. That's a, a very simple 16-bit microprocessor. So you don't have virtual memory, you don't have pipelines. It's like simple von Neumann machine. And there we implement attestation and isolation and enclaves um, very elegantly with minimal lines of uh, a, a Verilog code. And you kind of get the same guarantees as SGX, but you don't get all of the legacy and you don't get all of, all of the attack surface that's connected to that. Um, Interestingly, you do still have some side channels even on these very simple processors, um, and we are actively researching that as well. Um, but but if I can like wish something for the future, I, I would hope that Risk Five gains traction and that maybe uh, we come up with new innovative ways of of doing software isolation that don't just build on all the legacy of the last decades. I think you you hit a. Uh, perfect ending uh, with the with the uh, positive outlook. Um, I'm also super excited about that. I think with that, um, I think we can wrap it up. I think we made a really nice um, round trip through the whole um, discussion space. I'm going to try my best to include as many uh, links to projects we talked about in in the notes. Um, especially also the SDKs, because I also find that very interesting. And um, with that, uh, Jo, thanks for taking the time. Um, thanks for bearing with us for the, for the technical issues, um, which Flo is going to do an amazing job in editing them out, uh, <laughs> because otherwise I'm going to be a liar at the end here. Uh, <laughs> I will leave all of them in just to annoy you. Ah, damn it. <laughs> Um, as always, um, you can send us feedback via uh, the Matrix channel and an IRC channel. It's in the um, show notes. It's also on, on, on our website, syslog.show. Um, we are also happy to get any um, suggestions on people to, to talk to. Um, I think that's it. Um, with that, I would say... Thanks, you. Um, Thanks, guys. Uh, talk to you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope we meet physically uh, when the no when the world goes back to normal. Ah, uh, yeah, next year. <laughs> Let's just skip 2020. Okay. <laughs> yeah, fast forward. The way things are going, we could probably skip the whole decade. But yeah, <laughs> let's try. Get back to the positive outlook thing. So we, we, back we, to normal it is. <laughs> uh, we had already locusts. We're missing the alien invasion. And uh... okay, anyway. Uh, okay. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>